If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to 1 Kings 22. You're expecting to go to Colossians. We'll do that in a couple weeks. We'll finish up. I just want to tell you where we're going. So we're finishing up uh, Colossians by the end of August. And then from actually Labor Day all the way through uh, March, we're going to look at biblical passages that are often misunderstood or miscited. So every sermon will be exegetical, we'll be preaching from a text, but rather than going through a book, we're going to take 20 or so passages that are often taken out of context and cited and look at the biblical context of each one. And then... uh, Starting in April, probably all the way through to Christmas, the next one, uh, we're going to look at First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. So today I'll give us a taste of that. We're going to be in First Kings 22, and then we'll go back and finish Colossians. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God. Uh, Thank you for your inspired and errant word. Thank you for the truth that it gives us, objective truth. Truth grounded in reality. You declare it, and it is. Father, uh, allow this text to speak to our hearts. And to the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Isaiah Douglas Micaiah Hines, that's our son. That's his name. And I'd like to tell you how he got his name. The first is Isaiah, clearly named after the prophet Isaiah. You may know something about Isaiah. He served 700 years before Christ. He wrote a biblical book of 66 chapters carried along by God's Spirit He served four Judean kings, several of which were rascals. He is the one that saw the throne room of God. Only two have seen the throne room of God. Isaiah and John both got a glimpse, a sneak peek at the throne room of God. And if you know anything about Isaiah, it's a bit disappointing. It is. I'll be preaching that later on this week. I'll be at a family camp, and it's one of eight messages I'm going to give. But it's a bit disappointing, because if you see God, and you write about God, inquiring minds want to know, right? And what does he tell us? The hem of God's garment filled the temple. Are you kidding me? That's what you're going to give me, the hem? Well, it's because our language cannot accommodate what is beyond our imagination. All we can handle is the hem of God's garment. And so that's what he tells us. He saw God. He saw the throne room of God. This is a top 10 draft choice. He's a big guy. 700 years before the birth of Christ. He predicted it in chapter 7, in chapter 9, in chapter 11. 700 years before the atonement, the payment of our sin. He wrote about it in Isaiah 53. He wrote about Jesus who was led like a lamb to the slaughter and like his shear before a lamb is silent, so Jesus did not open his mouth and he died and then he conquered death and rose again. 
So that's why we named Isaiah, Isaiah. Because we wanted him to be like that prophet. His second name is Douglas, Isaiah Douglas. We got a twofer out of that one. That's my dad's name. It actually is also my name. I'm called by my middle name. My first name is Douglas, as is my dad's. And so we wanted Isaiah to be named after, really not his father, but his grandfather, my dad. We did that with all of our kids. All of our kids have four names. By the way, when your kids are in trouble and they're young, four sounds more ominous than three. (laughs) If I had known that, they'd have had eight names. But we wanted them to be named after a grandparent or great-grandparent. So each of our kids has a grandparent or grandparent that they're named after. Sandy and Ryan followed that tradition. And so Ray Ray is actually Ray Lynn Ann. My wife's name is Betty Ann. And her other grandmother is also Ann. And Ronan, our two-year-old, is Ronan Jeffrey named after his favorite grandfather. (laughs) Isaiah Douglas, Micaiah. That's who we're going to talk about today. It's actually this text that became the second middle name for our son, Isaiah. Let me set the scene. We're going to talk about Israel. Now we're talking about the divided kingdom at this point. You remember that we come out of the period of the conquest and we go into the period of the judges and then we have some kings. And we have Saul for 40 years and we have David for 40 years and then we have Solomon for 40 years. The first three kings span 120 years. And then you remember that Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes the throne And the people come to Rehoboam, particularly the 10 northern tribes, they come to Rehoboam and say, we will serve you faithfully as we served your dad, but you need to do two things for us. You got to lower the taxes. And you thought we were the first generation to say that. It's been going on throughout all of history. Lower the taxes and lower the forced corvée. That is, We're tired every third or fourth month of leaving our farms to go work for a month for the state without being paid. Lower the taxes, lower the corvée, and we will serve you. And you remember what Rehoboam does. One wise thing, one utterly foolish. The wise thing is he goes to the aged sages. He goes to those individuals who had served his father, who had been around for decades, who knew something about life. And he said, what do you say that I do? And they said, you know, the requests are actually fair. They're realistic. They're they're real. Just lower the taxes, lower the corvée. They'll serve you. And then he did something foolish. He went to the palace boys. All of them had grown up with a silver spoon in their mouth. They had not worked a hard day in their life. They knew nothing about what it means to grind out a living. And he said, what do you say? And they said, who's king? This is your opportunity to prove to everyone, you're the ruler, you're the king. What you say goes. And he followed their advice. And five, six of the kingdom, 10 of 12 tribes 
seceded from the union. And so those 10 retained the name Israel. And the two southern tribes, all he has left is called Judah. And there will never be all 12 tribes again as we knew them ruling over Israel. Even to this day, by the way. So we have the 10 northern tribes. And they have 19 kings. Over 200 years before God had had enough of them and allowed Syria to destroy them in 722 BC. 19 kings. 19 godless kings. 19 immoral kings. 19 unethical kings. Not a godly one among them. And God, who is slow to anger and abounding in love and patient, gives them 200 years, and they do not change. One of the worst of the kings is the family of Omri and Ahab. Omri is the father. Ahab is the king we'll talk about today. We're in the mid-9th century B.C., about 2,800 years ago, around 18 or 870 to 850 BC. That's the time period. He rules for 22 years. His father, Omri, was a great military leader, a builder, but utterly bankrupt spiritually. And Ahab is like his dad. He's a great builder. He's an expander. He's a military man. And he has utter disregard, disdain for God. And you remember what God says, both in the Old Testament and the New. He said, if you are going to have a mate, if you're going to get married, God doesn't care the ethnicity. God doesn't care the skin color. But God greatly cares that you and I marry somebody who aligns with us spiritually. That's what God cares about. I always told my kids, I don't care if you marry somebody purple. It makes no difference to me. As long as they love Jesus, that's what matters. That's what matters. Well, Ahab really could care less what God says. And so he goes to a Phoenician princess, Jezebel, and marries her. And the two are a moral wreck. They're an ethical wreck. They even commit murder together. They are a disaster. They disdain God. They care less about his word, his morals, his ethics. They could care less. And they have a daughter. Her name is Athaliah. And when Athaliah is of age, they marry her to the other kingdom. She leaves Israel and comes down to Judah because they think we can't rely on God. We don't even like God. We need a military alliance. So they marry their daughter over to the Judean king, Joram. But he's not long for this world. He's pushing up daisies after eight years. And so their son, Isaiah, comes to the throne and he lasts 12 months. And you know what Athaliah does? She murders every relative. If you are related to Athaliah, you are dead. Children, grandchildren, 
mother-in-laws, father-in-laws, aunts, uncles. She takes out every last one of them. Anyone who has a claim to the throne, she murders in cold blood. But she misses one. She misses a one-year-old, her own grandson, who she would murder her own grandson, Joash. And Joash is hidden from her for seven years, then placed on the throne, declared king, a godly king, by the way, and she is put to death. That's the family of Ahab. He is a moral, ethical, spiritually bankrupt individual. And he is the individual in today's text. Now he reigns for 22 years. And during those 22 years, he goes to war with Syria no less than three times. And you thought the problems between Syria and Israel and Israel and Syria were 21st century? They go back to the 9th century BC and beyond. And these guys have gone at it. And quite frankly, King Ahab is a pretty good military guy. And he won the first two. And because he won the first two, he demands reparations. He demands that some of the land that Syria had taken from Israel be returned, specifically Ramoth Gilead. Now, if you read six commentaries, they're going to give you eight locations of Ramoth Gilead. I'm pretty confident I know where it is. It's in the Golan Heights, just south of it. You see, the Golan Heights have been fought over, not just today, but they've been fought over for 2,900 years, 2,800 years. I think just south of that is Ramoth Gilead. And so that's the setting of today's text. I want to pick up in 1 Kings. Let's read verses 1 to 5 of chapter 22. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without a war. Oh, wow, pretty good. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, that's the opposite side, he came down to the king of Israel. That's Ahab. They're going to have a chat. And the king of Israel said to his servants, do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. His name is Ben-Hadad, in case you care. And he said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Long breath. That's really how the text should read. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, uh, let's inquire first the word of the Lord. Isn't that like us? Well, it's like me sometimes. A big decision to make, not expecting the decision. Suddenly I make a snap decision and then afterwards I think, oh man, I didn't really pray about that. I mentioned that just in this hour two weeks ago. I didn't mention it in any of the other hours, but I'll mention it again. It happened to me uh, back at the end of February, beginning to March. Betty Ann and I were driving actually through Georgia of all places. And our daughter called and in the course of it, I'd been her dad her whole life. I could tell something was wrong. And I said, honey, what what's wrong? She goes, well, wait till you get home. I said, no, no, no. <laughs> that doesn't cut it with dad. What's wrong? 
We'll have a family meeting when you get home. No, I want to know what's wrong. We're moving. I said, oh, let me guess, Georgia, which is where they're moving in two weeks. And what I said to you is true. I was quiet for 10 minutes, didn't say a word. You'd think I was praying, I was not. I actually pulled the car over, walked around on my own for a few minutes to think. Got back in the car and said to Betty Ann, uh, let's move to Georgia. And she said, okay, we'll move to Georgia. We've lived here since 2002, and in 10 minutes, without praying, I'm moving to Georgia. I'm quitting my job, selling my house, and we're moving to Georgia. Brilliant, right? 48 hours later, I said to Betty Ann, do you think we ought to pray about this? I know, you need a new pastor, an upgrade for certain. No doubt about that. But I was dead serious. I was just ready to move. And then we prayed about it and we felt like that was obviously not what God would have us do. But that sometimes happens to us. Sometimes we're faced with something we did not expect. Came right out of left field and we act or react, or say, or do what is out of character for us. And we ought to be better, especially when it's a big decision. How do we make big decisions? Not like that. We make big decisions by spending time in prayer, and then giving God the time to speak to us, by scouring scripture and finding parallels to our life, if need be, going to wise counselors and asking them, what would you say in our situation? What do big decisions look like? It might be dating. I actually think that's a big decision. We live in a day and age of casual dating. There's no such thing as casual dating. If you date someone, you might marry them. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Dating is a big decision. Marriage is a big decision. What church you attend is a big decision. What college you attend is a big decision. What job you take, relationships, these are big decisions. How do we make these kind of decisions? We don't do what Jeff did. We don't do what Jehoshaphat does and just blurt out, my people are your people. My horses are your horses. Hey, we'll send the army. I'll put my whole kingdom on the line. I'll do it. Oh, by the way, should we pray about this? That's a terrible way to make a decision. Now, Jehoshaphat had something we don't have, and we have something Jehoshaphat ha doesn't have. We both have something in common, and then we both have something opposite. What do we have in common? We have prayer. We can pray to God and then give him enough time to make impressions in our lives. We both have that. We have godly counselors. We both have that. What do we have that Jehoshaphat doesn't have? We have 66 books of scripture. We have the word of God. We have the counsel of God to find parallels. He really didn't have that. What does he have that we don't? He's got a bevy of prophets. In my opinion, most of the prophets have kind of faded out because we have the word of God. We have the written counsel of God. He didn't, so these prophets would speak the word of God. 
And so after already committing his army, already committing his nation, he says, is there not a prophet of God of whom we may inquire? Listen to the response, Ahab's response, verse 6 and then 10 to 12. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men. I got a lot of them. And he said to them, shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? And they said, go up. For the Lord will give it into the hand of the Lord. Be all you should be. Be an army of one. Go for it. Verses 10 to 12. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat the king of Judah were sitting on the thrones arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. Why Samaria? Because Omri moved the palace to Samaria, Ahab's father. So they're sitting at the entrance of the gate of Samaria And all the prophets, 400 of them, were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chananah, made for himself horns of iron. And he said, thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians. Some of you have a translation that reads, with these you shall gore the Syrians. I think that's more accurate. Until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied. And said, go up to Ramoth Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. 400 yes men. 400 men that are on the government dole. 400 men you can count on. They will prognosticate exactly what Ahab wants to be said. He's relying on these 400 because they're going to speak exactly what he has told them to speak. I don't know who these 400 are. Are they prophets of Baal? Maybe. But you remember back in 1 Kings 18, we have Elijah putting 450 prophets of Baal to death at the river Kishon. So we've already lost 450. Do we have another 400 of them? When Jezebel comes over to Phoenicia, She packs her bags and her baals and it spreads all throughout Israel. So we got more of these. I don't know. Not sure who they are, but they don't speak for the Lord. And what they do say essentially is this. Truth is in the eyes of the beholder and we are beholden to Ahab. So what Ahab says is what we will say. Isn't that the land we live in today? Isn't that where we live? We live in a land that is so postmodern, has so given up the age of enlightenment that your truth is acceptable even though it contradicts my truth. The only truth that is unacceptable is absolute truth. That's the land we live in. But as Christ's followers... Scripture declares that what God declares to be true is true, that it is not subjective, it is objective. God declares truth and it is so. God declares truth and it will come to pass. What God says is right is right. What God says is wrong is wrong. The objective truth of Scripture is what we believe as Christ's followers. But we live in a land, we live in a Western world that does not believe any longer in objective truth. Your truth is valid. My truth is valid, even though they contradict one another. 
as long as no one claims absolute truth. Well, God claims absolute truth. Let me illustrate this. We live in a day and age in which the winds of our society declares when life begins. God objectively says life begins in the womb. He tells us in Psalm 139, 13 to 16, that he is in the womb fashioning the child. Jeremiah 1, 5 says God knew Jeremiah in the womb. We read in Luke chapter 1 that when we have this man named John the Baptist in the womb of his mother Elizabeth, and she comes in contact with the child in Mary's womb, Jesus The child leaps for joy in the womb. And then the word given of the child is brephos. It's the word used for a child outside the womb, and yet it's used of John in the womb. God declares that life in the womb is human life. We live in a day and age where tragically people with dysphoria declare that they can choose their gender, not seeing well what's going to happen down the future and how much damage they are going to do to themselves. But God says in Genesis 1:27, male and female, I created them. Male and female, I made them. And so God declares objective truth, including the gender that he assigns to us. We live in a day and age where we redefine marriage. And yet God defines marriage as one man, one woman, which alone is where intimacy belongs. In Genesis 2, 24 and 25, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, and the man and the woman are both naked and not ashamed. We live in a day and age that devalues people, and yet God tells us that every person is made in the Imago Dei in the image of God, and that he has claimed a person or people for himself Revelation 4 and 5, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Therefore, because people matter to God, they must matter to us. God declares objective truth, not the subjectivity that is all around us. Jehoshaphat understands that. And so seeing these 400, he says in verse 7, Is there not a prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And Ahab replies in verse 8. Let me read it to us. He said, And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man, one, okay, one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Now, most scholars believe that they knew exactly where to find this Micaiah of Imlaw. Verse 26 says that he's under the control of a governor. I think the way the text actually reads is, he's up the river. He's in the big house. He's wearing pinstripes. He's already in prison. We know exactly where to find Micaiah because he's already been arrested prior for saying the word of God once before and he got in trouble for it, so he's imprisoned. And so they send for Micaiah. And you remember that the individuals who come and fetch Micaiah say, 
Essentially, this is your get out of jail card free. 400 prophets have agreed with Ahab. It better be 401. Make sure that you agree. Let me read verses 13 and 14. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them. Speak favorably. But Micaiah said, this is why we named our son after him. As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. We need more Micaiahs. We need individuals who with a graciousness and a winsomeness, yet with integrity, will say what God says. We need more Micaiahs. This prophet couldn't be bullied, bought, or silenced. He's up the river already. He's already in trouble. But he still is not going to say what the king wants. He's going to say what the king has already declared. You know what happens. He comes in contact with the two kings. There's 400 false prophets. They're bouncing around like bungee cords. And I mean, they're just ridiculous how they're parroting what Ahab wants. And so what does Micaiah do? He imitates them for a moment. He embarrasses Ahab who says, knock it off. Tell me a word from the Lord. Micaiah says, you want a word from the Lord? I'll tell you the word from the Lord. You go to battle, you're going to lose. And you are going to die. That's a word from the Lord. Be a Micaiah. Speak the word of God. Yet tragically, tragically, Jehoshaphat and Ahab go to war anyway. And you say, what? Jehoshaphat is like a godly king. We have 19 ungodly kings in Israel. We have like six godly kings in Judah. Jehoshaphat is one of them, but he's a mixed bag. He's very moral. He's very ethical. He often speaks the word of the Lord, but he never destroys the high places. There are four sets of high places in Israel. He doesn't destroy them. The place people go to worship false gods and to spiritually bankrupt their lives. As the leader, he should have done something about it. He could have done something about it. He didn't. So he's a mixed bag. And he's already committed his army. He's already committed his nation. He spoke first and then he inquired of the Lord. And the Lord said, go into battle and you lose. Ahab, you will die. And the two of them go anyway. It was Mark Twain, not a Christ follower, who purportedly said this. I'm not bothered by the scriptures that I do not do because I do not know them. I'm bothered by what I do know and I do not obey. That should be us. We ought to be bothered by the scriptures that we know and we do not obey. Jehoshaphat knows the word of the Lord, and yet he goes to battle. He doesn't live like Micaiah. Well, let me pick up. I want to read verses 29 to 36. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel, Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, I'll disguise myself and go into battle, 
but you wear your robes. Huh? I mean, Ahab obviously believes something, right? He believes that if God sees him, God's will will come to pass. But if God doesn't see him, if the enemy doesn't see him, God's will will be thwarted. It's kind of like Jonah. I was just teaching Jonah to my grandkids yesterday. God said to Jonah, go to Nineveh. And they got on a boat and Jonah went to Tarshish near Spain. Out of sight, out of mind, but it didn't work that way. He ended up getting swallowed by a fish and then had the first amphibious landing known to man, spit up in Nineveh. I'll disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And Jehoshaphat did. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small or great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random, luck, just by chance. This never works that way when I go hunting. And struck the king of Israel between the scale of armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day. And the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset, a cry went through the army. Every man to his city, every man to his country. In other words, we've lost the battle. Go home. How unfortunate. Both kings heard the word of the Lord. Jehoshaphat is oblivious and says, hey, I'll wear my kingly regalia. And he almost loses his life. Ahab tries to thwart the word of God and a random, by chance, lucky shot, no, a sovereign shot, nails him because God's word will not be thwarted. He loses his life. God said he would. Jehoshaphat will be disciplined because Hebrews 12, 6 says, God disciplines those whom he loves. He chastises those he calls as sons or daughters. And so when we are wayward, after a period of time, God may bring discipline into our lives to bring us back into a right standing with the Lord. I want to conclude with two thoughts. First, if the Bible is true, truth is not in the eyes of the beholder. If the Bible is true, postmodernity is false. If the Bible is true, there is objective truth. And when we are subjective with God's objective truth, we are out of step with God. And in fact, it's a sign of the end times. I'm not going to predict when Jesus returns. I just know it's one day closer today than yesterday. But listen to what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4. Three and four, he says this. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves 
teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into all kinds of myths. Paul says the day is coming when people will not stand for objective truth. The day is coming when we will prefer myths that your truth and your truth and my truth, even though at odds with one another, can all be true, so long as none of us declare absolute truth. Paul says that's a sign towards the end of time. You remember what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 5, verse 20. He said, a day is coming when people will call darkness light and light darkness. A day is coming when people will call evil good and good evil, and they'll call what is bittersweet and sweet bitter. I think that day is here. I think it's been here for a long time. It seems to be growing. But as Christ followers, we hold to the objective truth that what God says is true, what God declares will come to pass, and we will stand on the word of God. The second thing is this. We are never to be like the 400 yes men. The 400 yes men go with the winds of popularity. They go with the winds of whatever political persuasion is in power. We are to stand firm on God's word. This week, I'm going to go speak at a family camp somewhere. And in one of the messages, I'm going to make this statement. We are to be truth hearers, truth livers, and shalom givers. We're to truth hearers and sayers, but we're to hear the word of God. Truth livers, we're to live the word of God, but we are to be shalom givers. We are to extend peace. Peace does not mean compromise. It means the attitude in which we stand on the truth, we speak the truth, and we hear the truth. You probably know I'm going to preach eight sermons out of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of peace, or they shall receive peace. Sometimes we have two poles. The one pole is the one that says, you know what? I'm just going to be a chameleon. I'm going to just go along with the flow. I'm not going to speak truth or live truth. I'm just going to kind of blend in. God doesn't want that. The other is I'm going to live truth and speak truth, and I'm going to do so in a very angry, hate-filled, vitriolic way. God doesn't want that. This is what God wants. He tells us in Ephesians 4, verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We are never more like Christ than when we Hear and speak the truth, live the truth, and extend it with shalom, peace. That is, we speak the truth in love. We live the truth in love. That's Micaiah. No wonder we named our son after Micaiah. He's someone we all ought to imitate. Let's pray. 
Father God, I thank you for someone like Micaiah. Oh, it's easy to steal his name. Much harder to live out his legacy. And yet, Lord, that's what you call us to do. To live out his legacy. A man who was in prison, went back to prison, was told he would not leave prison until Ahab returned from war. But Ahab never returned. And so, Father, here's a man who lived a very sacrificial life, but great shall be his eternal reward. Help us to be like a Micaiah. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.